Welcome to the podcast coverage of the 2023 Annual Positive Meeting in Nashville, Tennessee. This is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans, and if you have listened to our coverage of meetings before, you know what to expect. We're going to be jumping around from conversation to conversation. We're going to be speaking with moderators and award winners, and we want to bring you their takeaways and what they've been presenting at the meeting. Now, the last thing I'll say before we jump in is the sound quality will be a little different than what you're used to. There's going to be a lot of background noise, even though we were recording in a soundproof booth. There was just a lot of buzz and a lot of activity, but I think you're going to be able to hear everything you need just fine. So with that, let's get into it. All right, everybody, here we are back at the annual meeting. This is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans, and I am joined by two of the moderators of this morning's sessions. Hi, my name is Colin May from Boston Children's. And I'm Jamie Denning from Cincinnati Children's. And uh, we are going to start off right now talking about the foot and ankle session. So with no further ado, um, as you guys know, I'd love to hear about sort of the takeaways. What were the highlights for you? Yeah, we had a really great session. Uh, It was basically broken into two parts. There was uh, six academic papers that were presented uh, in the first section. Um, I will talk about a couple of those to start, and Jamie will take over. The first paper that we uh, had the pleasure of listening to is um, out of Washington University, and uh, Julio Hosanzada. This is a retrospective review of feet treated with the Dobbs method for congenital vertical talus. Take-homes from this study really were that uh, even at long, longer-term follow-up, the correction that they had achieved with the Dobbs method had been maintained, um, but that there were some patients in whom uh, there was a higher recurrence rate, and this included patients with syndromic conditions, including uh, arthrogryposis. So, um, but you know, I think for a lot of us who do that method, it was good to see that longer-term uh, the results were maintained. Second paper uh, was uh, presented by Lisa Cow from TSRH, uh, looking at Ponsetti uh, treatment and whether or not heel cord tenotomy was a necessary component of it. Um, take home uh, from this study was that um, 75% almost of their cohort underwent tenotomy, um, and having a tenotomy decreased the risk of later surgery by almost a third. And most of their poor uh, or fair outcomes happened um, in higher demigla score patients that didn't have a tenotomy. So I think my take home from that was that um, you know there may be a subset of patients who don't require a tenotomy, but um, that is probably a small subset uh, of the total, and still tenotomy is a useful part of the Ponsetti treatment that we need to consider in most patients. So let me ask you one of our... Uh previous questions here on the show, because we love to hit the controversies. What percentage of your patients do you think are getting tenotomies for club foot? Mine's probably upwards of 90%. I would say mine's 90 or more. Yeah, same. Yeah, my sort of initial, when people ask me this question, uh, because I get it from families and from residents, uh, is that if, if they don't require tenotomy, I question whether or not it was truly a I think it almost totally. is part of the diagnosis and definition of a clubfoot is that it has an Aquinas contraction that is going to require a tenotomy. So I like that. Yeah. Um, the third paper and the last one I'll talk about uh, before I turn it over to Jamie is um, from Derek Kelly at the Campbell Clinic. Uh, they looked at a group of uh, patients treated by Ponsetti method and they 
uh, did a trial which randomized between surgeons versus physical therapists doing the casting. Uh, really interesting study. Um, they found the bottom line is that the, uh, the outcomes were the same, effectively, in the two groups. And um, this has the implications of improving access. I think many of us who do global health work and see that you know, all over the world, non-physicians are doing a lot of the casting. It's something that we've seen, not just in the U.S., but it's good to see it here, too, that we can train our physical therapists and non-MDs to do the casting uh, and do it effectively. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Very reassuring. Yeah. And then uh, moving on to the next paper, Tony Riccio looked at the difference in recurrence in toe-walking patients who were treated surgically, the idiopathic group versus the patients who have uh, sensory processing disorders, okay. and found that there was a higher recurrence rate uh, about a year after surgical treatment for toe-walking in the sensory processing disorder group. There's about a 24% recurrence in that group versus about a 5% recurrence in the idiopathic group. So I think this is important work, just the take-home message is that you counsel patients and families differently in the patients who have sensory processing disorders or autism when you're going to treat them surgically. And part of the discussion we had was around other things that might be able to be employed, like bracing or sensory training with physical therapy afterwards that might be able to affect that outcome. So what is that in your practice? Like, I, I for me, I really try to encourage AFOs, but that's not everyone's favorite. We've talked about the sort of social implications on this yes. show before. Yes. So uh, with Tony's study, they did nighttime dorsiflexion, stretching braces. I personally do at least six weeks of daytime bracing after six weeks of casting. I don't know how good the compliance actually is and a nighttime stretching brace. Mm -hmm. So it can be one brace that they wear daytime and nighttime. And we also are very lucky in Cincinnati, we have an excellent toe walking physical therapy program and they incorporate sensory training, whether it's preoperative in place of surgery or postoperative treatment of toe walkers. Yeah, I think the sensory training piece is hugely important, which we unfortunately don't have access to, but I wish we did because I think that can really help the treatment of these kids with sensory processing disorders I think can be really challenging. I know that when we looked at our toe walking cohorts, the rates of surgery were significantly higher in that mm-hmm. group. And, it, you know, it's one of those where I don't I don't know yet the answer as to whether or not these other things work. Or should we just be totally. immediately going to surgery and everybody who's got, you know, toe walking in that, in those, you know, issues with um, sensory processing. So, yeah. Um, and then we had a really excellent flexible flat foot surgical treatment paper by Dr. DeFrancesco. Um, they covered radiographic parameters, pedobarographic parameters, and some functional parameters in a prospective study of 25 patients with flexible flat foot. All those patients were treated with a lateral column lengthening, and then a portion of the patients had some medial-sided either soft tissue or bony procedures. And I think the take-homes are that radiographically and functionally across the board, these patients did very well, which I think clinically we would all probably say that, but it's very nice to have these very objective data to be able to present to patients. All of the x-ray measurement and all of the promised domains were improved by 12 months post-op for all these flat foot patients. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think my take home from that too is that, you know, the lateral column length thing, which has been the workhorse for a lot of us for flat foot correction for a long time, really is a good procedure. And as we start to transition, at least in my practice, to more minimally invasive flat foot correction, either with 
calc slides or doing sessa screws things like that you know we're, it's a pretty high bar to have to try to make it as good as the level home like that yeah and i think the to be determined portion of this paper is the bony medial-sided procedures um, they kind of lumped all the medial-sided soft tissue and bony procedures into one which did not seem to change any of these radiographic or outcome parameters Interesting. but they were small enough subgroups that I think there wasn't ability to measure some of those things um, and so, then, so we, we always hit on this on the show, too, because there's a strong San Diego bias in our training. So we always love to talk about the triple Cs versus the lateral column lengthening. Right. So what's, what's your sort of algorithm once you do the lateral column lengthening? What, how do you think about the medial side? So mine's almost exclusively a clinical assessment of the supination of the forefoot, just looking from the distal aspect of the toes and seeing if the first ray is off of the ground when the foot's in neutral dorsiflexion. So I do a lot of medial bony-sided cuneiform osteotomies because I feel like most of the patients that I get a really dramatic correction of their Mm -hmm. lateral column have some supination that would affect their So that was the next question I wanted to ask you. What percentage in your practice are getting that medial column uh, first ray flexion to address the supination? That has been changing over time, but I would say... Probably over 75% are getting yeah. a bony procedure Me now. too. I've been really surprised in practice. By the time they get to adolescent age, I think there's going to be a, you know, a supination deformity, and you've got to do that. I almost always yeah. am addressing the medial side. With a bony procedure, and I think that was one of the sticking points here, was that they were talking about doing soft tissue, medial side, you know, placation, and other soft tissue advancements, which alone I think are not sufficient and didn't seem to help, uh, which is not, not yeah. surprising here. Yeah. Yeah. And then we, we rounded out with the paper that impressed Vince Mosca. So <laughs> we rounded out. All right, with, we'll just cut uh, everything else yeah, out. Right. Sure, we'll yeah. just so it, it's, it's good that it was the sixth paper, but Craig Lauer talked about the prevalence and long-term outcomes of tarsal coalitions that had not been treated in a county-based osteoarthritis project with radiographic outcomes in patients about 70 years old at follow-up, even older sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so found that the prevalence of coalitions was about 14%. So... General uh, population, 14%? General population within this Johnson County osteoarthritis project. So everyone has arthritis in this project? So, no, this is just a prospective study looking for patients that develop uh, okay. lower so extremity general So, population these are asymptomatic at the start of enrollment patients Got who it. are followed for development of osteoarthritis and found that of the patients that had coalition, so these 14% of this cohort, they did very thorough radiographic measurements for osteoarthritis and did outcome uh, measurements for patients, how they describe their function and their pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was not an increase in pain, arthritis, or lack of functioning in the patients that had coalitions. So I think the take-home from this is basically that it's useful to have prevalence data, which is fairly consistent with other data that's been out there, but functionally you can really counsel patients that you do not have to proactively operate just because you find a coalition, you can really reassure them that even in these 70-plus-year-old patients, they don't have an increased uh, foot pain or osteoarthritis radiographically. All right, so knowing that, that adolescent patient we were talking about who's had this flat foot for a while, but now we're talking about a rigid flat foot with a coalition, are you routinely in that 16, 17-year-old doing the flat foot and the coalition, or one first and maybe the other, or how do you stage that? I usually do both at the same time. So 
I would say symptomatically, I'm usually doing primarily the flat foot reconstruction, right. just where they're having pain. It's not always in the sinus tarsi or somewhere else. So I'm doing the flat foot reconstruction, but at least a calcaneo-navicular coalition, you can essentially do the resection of that through the same incision you're going to do a lateral column lengthening through. So if I know the coalition is there and I'm doing a flat foot reconstruction, I'll just do both. What about you, time. Colin? Are you ever leaving a coalition and just doing the flat foot? Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's more often the other way around that I'll take out the coalition and leave the flat foot. I think it's really based on where their pain is and if mm-hmm. I could, if I feel that the pain is due to the coalition alone and I can take out a coalition and they then have a somewhat flexible flat foot I don't tend to think that's necessarily something that needs to be treated so if they can get their pain under control with the coalition alone. So let's get totally anecdotal of those patients of yours how often are you, do you think you're coming back to address the rarely. flat foot? Really? Yeah. Right. Yeah, really. Just to put in a plug for PD Forge, the Pediatric Foot and Ankle Study Group, yes. there is an ongoing IRB to look at just that, the patients who fail their coalition resection and need further surgery later on. Awesome. Great stuff. Well, thank you, yep. guys, and uh, good to see you, and hope you enjoy the rest of the week in Nashville. Thanks thank for having you. us. All right, this is Julia Sanders coming to you live from the annual meeting uh, at POSNA. I'm here with Ben Sheffer and Ryan Mukau, who were the moderators for the Trauma Subspecial Days Day session. So thank you guys for joining us. If you could give us maybe just a few highlights for you guys of the two morning sessions, which were, were really great. Absolutely. You want to take it, Ryan? Go ahead, Ben. You start All right, I got it. I got it. So uh, some of the highlights were uh, we, we discussed uh, the theme of outpatient and freestanding ASE treatment of pediatric fractures. And by far the biggest highlight or the biggest surprise to me, both the same, is everybody's talking about this already. Um, people are doing this at their own hospitals already. We haven't communicated a lot. So, like, one, one of the things that somebody talked about was COVID, right? Like, force us. Like, we got to find something to do with these fractures. We got to plan this. We can't just keep showing up to work and seeing what work there is. Like, we got to plan this ahead of time. And, and some of the work that's come out from CHOP and stuff like that as they develop these protocols for this stuff. So, that, that was the biggest surprise for me is people are already having these conversations and setting this up, even though we may not necessarily have all the data to say that it's okay. Yeah. Fantastic session uh, from learning how do we can grow our ability to take care of these fracture patients on an outpatient basis. I think some of the primary research that was presented was top-notch this morning. We had some fantastic papers. Uh, we think about some of the uh, spine research that's been going on and the spine trauma, so we had a couple nice papers um, about how to take care of um, thoracolumbar injuries as well as uh, um, atlanto-occipital disassociation. That was pretty cool. A couple nice tibiotubercle papers um, about how to properly rehab and, and return to function um, in terms of time embrace and versus cast. And uh, that was a pretty neat takeaway. Get them moving quicker, keep them out of the cast. It seemed like the takeaways there. Uh, start using the um, extension bracing. So those are some neat highlights as well, some um, takeaway actionable items that we can uh, have from this session. Yeah, yeah, really nice mix, I think, of, of primary research, of, of kind of expert opinion. Really nice mix this morning um, with, as you say, some, some things that are really going to affect my my day-to-day practice, which is fun. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. All right. Uh, Ben, since I know your institution has a lot of experience with taking trauma to an outpatient setting, um, I guess yours does too because Vince was up there as well. Yeah, right. So both of you guys, for people who are interested in doing this, you gave some pointers on how to maybe start this at your institution and make things go smoothly. Maybe each of you share, share one pointer that the audience at home can take if they're interested in trying to implement this at their institution. 
Yeah, absolutely. I would say communication is key and saying yes is key. So there's two parts to this because at some point somebody's going to find a fracture and they're going to find they need a dispo fairly quickly, right? The, whether the hospital is going to have it transferred in, whether they're going to go home or whatever. Somebody wants an answer. And so you have to get communication. Hey, there's an elbow fracture. What are we going to do about it? Mass text or whomever and be able to get an answer within five to ten minutes. The surgery is going to be on this day at this time by this doctor. And so having those group texts or emails or whatever that are secured set up, uh, it sounds hard, but we do this all the time anyways, right? And, yeah. and that's really all it is, is just doing what we have at our disposal and just making sure we're getting on it quickly. Yeah, I think um, it's really neat to see the thoughts that Ben's talking about where we have this organic, naturally taking care of this patient and you, how can I move them into a better care scenario? Can I identify the right fracture in the right patient that's in the right family that can then be treated in a uh, semi-urgent basis in a more controlled setting and be a win-win-win for the hospital, the physician, and the patient? Like That would be a sweet scenario. I think we learned about that. Um, and so it's really identifying those patients. I think organically we had those conversations and then the CHOP experience showed us, uh, Jack, this morning how if you can protocolize that and with certain fractures you can start to identify a process where hey type 2 supracondylars okay that goes into this pathway it gets automatically triaged to this institution or this hospital surgery center uh, it gets pre-authorized the morning of it gets surgery that afternoon it's an amazing situation they put together so I think that's kind of the end result of these organic thoughts that we're uh, discussing today there, there was a comment from the audience about the cost savings and how that's so much needed in American healthcare, and that we should be really pushing many different fractures to get there. Um, any comments on, are we at risk of pushing too far, too fast, and any thoughts on how we study the results of these going forward so we know we're actually not doing our patients a disservice by trying to push everything outpatient? Yeah, I think that's a great counterfactual that we want to be aware of, right? Do we Are we doing something that's too out there where we're putting our patients at risk? And it felt like our authors did a really great job speaking about complications and about risks uh, of maybe moving these uh, fracture care um, experiences into an outpatient surgery center, maybe exposing patients to risks. Um, so I think we had a couple nice talks that highlighted that and tried to put boundaries uh, on what's too far. Um, but I think that's the point of the discussion too, Craig. It's fantastic point because yeah. we don't want to have a situation where all of a sudden every fracture thinks uh, it can be treated on patient service and that just wouldn't be good for the kids and families. One of the surprising things to me was actually how many people raised their hand when I asked how many people had access to an ambulatory surgery center. There were more people than I than I expected, I think. And um, so I would encourage kind of all of our listeners out there, if you are doing this regularly and you have experiences, we need publications. We need data to support this. And so if you're doing this and you've had a good experience, like publish it. Um, and if you've had a bad experience, also publish definitely that. publish yeah, that. Yeah, yes. yeah, because we need we need more information, um, hard data to guide our own experiences and other people that are building ASCs. And, and so if anybody's out there that's listening to this, please uh, please put it out there in paper. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. Look forward to seeing you around the rest of the meeting. Yeah, enjoy the rest of the day. Great session. Absolutely. Thank, Thank you, you so too. much, guys. All right, take yes, care. Take care. And we are back in the booth, and uh, Ben Shore from Boston Children's is joining us right now, and we got a lot to talk about. He's got a bunch of papers, a bunch of sessions at the meeting, and so we're going to start it off with a paper that is actually being presented as we speak, 
And so, Dr. Shore, will you tell us about this uh, floating elbow study? Yeah, awesome. Guys, thanks a lot for uh, inviting me. I think you do a great job, and I'm uh, really proud of the cozy, so uh, <laughs> I'm pretty stoked. But um, yeah, my, uh, my colleague Keith Baldwin is uh, presenting in this session right now on floating elbows. And uh, this is uh, one of, I think, the highlights uh, from the Cortices group in this meeting. Um, and, you know, the Cortices group in general tries to do papers on injury patterns that are fairly rare, but if we can then pile those injury patterns together across 19 centers, we have a meaningful uh, database that we can then start to ask questions about. And so Keith wanted to look at what's the rate of compartment syndrome in floating elbows and see how frequently compartment syndrome really develops. Like the training for us was that compartment syndrome is high in floating elbows, and so we tended to fix those a lot and be very worried about compartment syndrome, but clinically we haven't really seen that, so we wanted to look at it. And, um, you know, I think the takeaway message from this paper is that we looked at, you know, 19 sites, hundreds of floating elbows, and the rate of compartment syndrome was 0.2%. So way, way, way lower than what I thought and way, way lower than what all of us thought. And I think that message is important to get out there. In addition to that, Keith's created this grading system which kind of parallels with the Gartland classification that looks at the elbow fracture and then degree of displacement in the forearm and the distal radius to help guide your risk of compartment syndrome. So, um, Ben, if we have, um, if you have a... Uh, super or humerus, maybe a type 3 or even a type 2. Generally, most people are going to be fixing those. But if you've got a distal radius that's non-displaced, that typically you would just cast in place, you're saying you can still just cast that and should not be overly concerned about having a cast that's too yeah. tight. Okay. Yeah, and what was interesting is we looked at all floating elbows. Like We didn't just pick the displaced ones. And the reality is there's lots of minimally displaced supercondylars and either distal radius or forearm shafts in the cohort, and mm-hmm. those often were just treated with casting successfully without compartment syndrome. And so, you know, I think you can use your general principles of management safely, you know? I think you always should communicate risk signs to the families, but you can effectively treat them conservatively. But the ones that we need to be concerned about that uh, Keith's highlighting right now, which ones do we need, need to stay in the hospital after our treatment? Which ones do we need to watch? You know, closer? I think it makes sense that the ones that really need to be monitored carefully are the ones that are displaced at both ends, right? So you have the displaced type 3 uh, at the distal humerus, and you have a displaced either shaft or distal radius that's right off. Those are the ones in the small cohort that actually develop compartment syndromes are the ones that I think you need to monitor with that 24-hour observation. Yeah, that's super helpful. And then we talked a little bit offline about cortices. For those of you who don't know, it's this really cool research interest group about fractures and growing children. So some of the big topics that they're looking at going forward are rigid tibial nails in growing children, neck fash, open fractures across a lot of institutions to build up numbers, and then Liz Frank injuries. And so out of those in particular, I'd love to hear your sort of thoughts or any pearls on uh, how you think about using rigid tibial nails in children with open physes or nearly closed physes. Yeah, thanks, Cutter. You know, so CORTICE stands for Children's Orthopedic Trauma and Infection Consortium for Evidence-Based Studies. So it's a pretty big mouthful, so that's why we kind of stick it with CORTICES. Um, and it's a group of about 19 centers. Uh, there always is opportunity to grow. Uh, so if you check out our website, uh, there's a membership application. We usually open the application up 
after the POSNA meeting. I think this year we're not opening just because we've had a growth of about 11 members in the last calendar year just from internal changes. But, you know, what we did on Tuesday is we had a half-day research meeting where we just did some further hypothesis generation around these topics that Carter alluded to. And, and I think the challenge in rigid nailing and growing kids in the tibia is just to know when the physis is open and closed. And, you know, what we use as a group is the lateral proximal tibia, and we're really looking at the physis of the proximal tibia. And the physis should be fairly consistent from anterior to posterior. If that's the case, that means the kid has at least two years of growth remaining. And what starts to happen as the physis closes is the posterior aspect of the proximal tibia starts to narrow. And that's your first sign that there's maybe less than two years of growth remaining. And maybe that's an indication to safely start to nail. Some of the members in our group are nailing kids younger than that and have not seen any significant growth complications. And that's really our goal to try and prove. And is that all based on x-ray? Are you using MRI to look at the physis or anything like that? Yeah, so these are x-ray features just because in general when you got a tibia fracture, you're not going to stick them in an MR just because they're painful you want to get them treated. It's just logistically a challenge. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of one of our next projects moving forward is creating a very large retrospective database of, of nailed tibias in open physis and see what happens with them over time. Yeah, that's, that's a great pearl. I'll be excited to see where the research goes and lateral x-ray of the knee, check out the width of the physis at the posterior side. Very interesting. Thanks. Thanks, Ben. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Yes, sir. Appreciate it. All right, and we are back now with Dr. Salil Upasani, and you were an arguer this morning in the hip session in one of the debates. Can you tell us about that session, and most importantly, what are the takeaways we should learn from it? Yes, no problem. Thank you. So I was invited to be in a debate. The moderators for the HIP subspecialty day were Dr. Simon Kelly from Sick Kids and Dr. Stephanie Poon from Stanford. And they did a fantastic job of selecting a lot of controversial cases for us to go through and discuss treatment options. So the one that I was uh, selected for was a six-week-old infant with stable dysplasia. And so that is considered a graph 2, A, B, or C hip in a six-week-old. And the question was whether to use a pavlik harness to treat that child or to actively monitor the child. Great. And so how'd that debate play out? What did you argue? And Or forget what you argued. What would you do with that kid? <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. So I would normally monitor a six-week-old to see if the dysplasia will improve over time because there have been a number of studies to support that point of view. But I was asked to actually debate or support the other side, which is using a pavlik harness in that child. And obviously, uh, you know, after doing an extensive literature review, there isn't a lot of support to support us placing those infants in a pavlik harness. So I had to use some gamesmanship and <laughs> trickery to try to bring in some uh, chat GPT organized debate strategies and paid $6 for a AI of President Barack Obama 
convincing the audience to use a brace. <laughs> and somehow, despite the smoke and mirrors, the audience started <laughs> off saying uh, if maybe 60% would uh, just observe, not start with a brace. Yeah. And then by the end, after listening to you and several other people present the data, much higher. Yes. It, maybe Improved 70, 80% would have observed rather than bracing Correct. this uh, six-week-old, 50% femoral head coverage, 52-degree alpha angle. Correct. Yeah. So there are actually a lot of good uh, take-home points from that debate. So first of all, like you said, the pre-discussion poll did show quite a bit of support for placing an infant with stable dysplasia into a pavlocarnus. And I was surprised to see uh, that much of the audience choosing that option. And obviously, I was asked to debate on the pavlocarnus side, but honestly, my heart is with the observation side. So I kind of threw my support for observation as well. And there have been a number of single-center retrospective studies, but also more importantly, multi-center randomized control trials. And obviously the best known one or most recent one is by uh, Virginie Pollet, uh, which showed no difference with a randomized control trial. And there's some criticism about that study saying that there were a lot of children that crossed over. So as the physicians were observing them, a percentage of kids were transitioned into the pavlocarnus. And so now we are involved with the Global Hip Dysplasia Registry run by Dr. Kish Mulpuri and Emily Schaefer out of BC Children's in Vancouver. And we're about to start a new prospective randomized trial to try to, once and for all, put this question to rest. And the big takeaway points of that is that this is going to be a global study, so patients from all around the world, so we're not just representing the North American or the European point of view. We have very strict criteria for children that are going to get selected to participate in the study. They're going to be randomized to observation or brace treatment. And then, very importantly, there's very strict criteria for when a child can cross over into the brace treatment group. So. Hopefully, with two-year follow-up, we will get some pretty definitive evidence. So one member of the audience suggested they wanted to know a little bit more about when you and the other panelists would have started bracing. For example, when I started practice and was starting to make these decisions, um, I found a paper that supported using 50-degree alpha angle in these younger patients rather than 60. So I'm, I'm curious for you, what are those sort of, what are the mildest cases where you're starting a pavlic harness? What are your real thresholds? Yeah, so if we're, if I'm going to treat stable acetabular dysplasia, I would continue to observe until three months of age, so 12 weeks. If at that point the child still has dysplasia, I think all the, all of these uh, studies that I referenced that showed no difference over time, there was an improvement in that alpha angle or the femoral head coverage up until that 12-week time point. So I think if you're not seeing normal hip based on those kind of definitions that we're using for alpha angle and femoral head coverage, I would use a pavlic. But the big takeaway point from the session this morning was that if the hip is not centered, so if it's a grade three or four hip, there's instability or obviously a dislocation, there's no waiting to start the pavlic harness. So if we're talking about stable on your ultrasound with manipulation, stable on your physical exam, is there any alpha angle or amount of femoral head coverage that you're starting uh, a pavlic for? Not under three months of age. Great. All right. Now, no, I mean, I think I think the only thing that worth worth highlighting is when you're choosing to not brace, it's not as though you're telling the family see you later. It's important to follow them up, and I mean that's why that study had crossover, right? Is Correct. That you follow them up, and if you're doing that, then the people who 
maybe eventually prove they need a brace, you're going to catch them and they're going to be adequately treated. Yeah, exactly. So to refine that a little bit, like you were saying with some more severe alpha angles, right? If it's a 2B, 2C hip, you might want to see them sooner than six months, or uh, sorry, at six weeks. So you'd see them back in two weeks, repeat the ultrasound, see if the child is continuing to make progress. So that six-week follow-up, which would be at three months of age, what would you, what kind of imaging would you get at that point? Uh, that was a little bit of a debate as well. Most of the audience, I think, would get an ultrasound. You know our bias or preference in San Diego is to get an x-ray at that point. How have your two practices changed since leaving fellowship? I mostly still do ultrasound, and I only get that x-ray if there's a chance that it might talk me out of doing the pavlic harness. So I would do an x-ray in this situation for that exact same reason. Right. That's when I get the x-ray. Great. And Craig? I have gone, um, I'm using ultrasound a little bit later than just, you know, the three months. Yeah. I do like to see some ossification of the femoral head to really show me not just vastabular angle, but like how covered is this head. And that, that for me is helpful. So um, when they get closer to four to six months, I'm going with an x-ray. Okay. Yeah, so that was more topics that were discussed this morning. There's some thought that the ultrasound only gives you a single slice of what the hip looks like. Again, if the hip center isn't exactly where the acetabular center is, you're not seeing both those structures perfectly. And so maybe some newer three-dimensional ultrasound techniques might be interesting and become more standard of care. Dr. Sankar presented an excellent paper looking at his 3D technique, which I think isn't really prime time or you know, applicable to all centers and needs a lot of post-processing analysis, but maybe that could be something to chat with him about as well. Yes, we hope to. And speaking of new technology and chat GPT and AI, uh-huh. so this big multi-center study registry that you're talking about, do you think there's a role for machine learning there to start picking up on which one of these hips look like they need treatment and are more likely to go on to uh, fail if they are not just observed? Yeah, I think that is interesting. There is some AI that's being brought into analysis of x-rays to, to give you know measurements of acetabular index as well as um, percent migration. You know, there have been tools that have already been created for that. I think most of these kids will have ultrasounds to determine you know, the severity of their dysplasia. And I'm sure AI to analyze and categorize those kids is not too far down the road. There's lots of studies that show the subjectivity of obtaining the ultrasound as well as reading the ultrasound. And perhaps some of these machine tools can help us be better at that. Yeah. seems like it's got to be a matter of time. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Always Always a pleasure, guys. Thanks. We are back in the booth, and now we are going to be talking about the sports subspecialty day session. I'm joined by... Julia Sanders from Children's Colorado. And one of the moderators of the session, Dr. Nirav Pandia from UCSF. Thank you so much for making the time to be with us. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me. So uh, it sounds like this was a great session. I uh, am sorry that I missed it. I was in a concomitant session, and I'm very excited to get the, the chance to hear some of the details from you. So it sounds like there were a bunch of topics covered, and we're just going to try to hit the high points for the audience. So if it's okay with you... We'll just sort of rattle through these. I know you guys covered LET, uh, lateral extraarticular tenodesis. What is the what's the hot take? Yeah, so I think you know, five ten years ago, people were not certain what the indications were, but I think that in our high risk population young adolescents who are going to re-tear, what can we do to prevent re-tear? And LAT's kind of got a lot more prominence now because of that. The take home from that is that 
even though many of us were doing it in the revision setting, doing it in the primary setting for high-risk athletes, those playing soccer, or basketball, football, may be indicated, and there are good outcomes with that as well, too. What, what about a hyper-lax kid who's not an athlete, necessarily? Do they get one in your hands? They do, yeah. Usually, if they have recurvata more than 10 degrees or have some sort of ligamentous laxity, anything you can do to prevent that re-tear is great. Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, what's your technique for the LAT? I do the modified Lemer. Um, you know, since I'm not an IT band ACL surgeon, there's always debate about that. I use a modified Lemer, kind of more like an adult style. Yeah. Cool. And then, uh, you know, with Julia here for trauma, this is perfect. The next thing you guys jumped into in sports was the clavicles. So where are we on clavicles right now? Yeah, the pendulum keeps swinging. You know, adults fixing, not fixing, kids fixing, not fixing. I think with the fact study group that Ben Hayworth has led, we have data now that says that you can pretty much treat any clavicle fracture and it's gonna, without surgery and it's going to do fine. The real question is when you're making that decision with the family, what can you gain by fixing it? And there's some thought that you can get back to sports a little bit quicker, but that really seems to be the main indication of fixing it beyond parent preference. So if you're talking to a family about getting someone back to sports, thinking about putting a plate on a clavicle, what time frame do you tell them they could get back to sports with and without surgery? Yeah, so typically with surgery, as long as they're healing appropriately, usually around six weeks, I'll let them go back to full sports. Also during that six weeks, they can train a little bit more aggressively than if they're in the swing. Three months if they don't have a have surgery. So, um, you know, the six-week difference for my hands, the data says it's about a three-week difference, mm-hmm. but um, it doesn't control for protocols. It's not standardized. So somewhere between three to six weeks, I think the advantage is. Okay, that's awesome. And then next, I know you guys went on to the first-time dislocators, shoulder, and patella. So let's start with shoulders. What was the conclusion about first-time shoulder dislocators? John Rebo did a great job presenting the data. There's strong data to suggest that fixing first-time shoulder dislocators not only decreases the chance of them dislocating again, but also makes that surgery a lot easier. You're dealing with less bone loss, better quality labral tissue. So absolutely fixing it the first time, totally indicated. But there's also a role for non-operative treatment. Just patients have to know what the risks of doing so are. So basically shared decision-making, is that sort of where you're coming down for those first time? But offering first-time dislocators uh, surgery, typically. Yep, absolutely, yep. And then maybe even more interesting, how about those first-time patellar dislocators? Yeah, I know it's an area of controversy, so many different er ways to fix patellar dislocators. You know, traditionally, I think the main indication been if you've got an osteochondral fracture, you're going in and fixing it. But now, just given the high rate, even more so than shoulder dislocation, the high rate of recurrent instability, chondral damage, there is a push now to do reconstructions for a first-time dislocator so you can have them get back to a better quality of life because the patient outcome scores are pretty poor for the non-operatively treated patient, you know, first-time dislocators. Yeah, that's great. And when you have those first-time dislocators, how do you think about their rate of recurrence? Is it just about saving them time if you operate? Or do you think with a repeat dislocation, there's a risk of an osteochondral? In other words, is that osteochondral fracture only really happen on that first high-energy dislocation, or is there a risk of that with the subsequent dislocations also? I think it's a risk with the subsequent dislocations. That first hit may weaken the cartilage, and that second and third one are going to cause that to shear off. All right, and then you guys moved on. You guys moved on to failed MPFLs. So where do you go from that patient that gets an MPFL and then they uh, come back with a new dislocation? Yeah, I think the key is the bone. You know, you definitely, like, a lot of times we'll get an MPFL, patella dislocator, we, we've thrown MPFL in, they get referred to us. You have to concentrate and say, what are the bony things that are causing this? Is this an issue with, uh, you know, abnormalities in terms of where the tubercle is? Is there trochlear dysplasia? Is there a rotational issue? So you have to address the bone and then subsequently then revise the MPFL because you've changed the anatomy as well, too. 
Great point. So that, that makes it a much bigger surgery at that point. So are you going and taking out that whole MPFL graft, or are you ever shortening the graft? What's your approach to that? I typically will redo the entire MPFL as long as the bone quality is good in there. You know, with a lot of techniques, you're putting bit anchors in, then you're kind of lost, you know, in terms of what you do, and then you may do a medial implication. Uh, but I try to revise it if there's good bone stock. Very cool. And lastly, I know you guys finished up the session with Capitella OCDs. So yeah. what's the, the state of the art right now? Yeah, there's still a lot of debate in it, and it's obviously is a lot based on what your comfort level is. You know, I think a lot of people, it's totally reasonable to scope first, do microfracture, and augment it. But I think it's really taken into consideration the athlete. So if you're a pitcher, you can potentially get away with that because it's sheer forces. But for a gymnast where you're actually loading and there's more force across the bone, it may be better to go to a graft, you know, whether that be an allograft, an autograft. Um, so I think you really have to take into consideration the sport and where the lesion location is. So what is your personal graft of choice? I typically don't see a lot of gymnasts just in the nature where our practice is, so I see a lot of pitchers. So I typically will microfracture and augment with some sort of biologic material. But if I do have to go to a um, kind of a graft, I usually will use an allograft. I think some of the pre-contoured allografts work great, and you eliminate that knee pain that you get from an autograft. Very cool. This was awesome. I learned a lot, and I uh, really appreciate your time. Awesome. Thanks for having me again. Julie, are you not too angry about this uh, idea of fixing some clavicle fractures? You know, I think there's there's still there's those people that come to your office and they're not going to leave until they get right. it fixed. Exactly. So I still fix a few of them, and I do. I say the same thing. You know, it's yeah, it may get you back a little bit faster. Yeah. So exactly.